Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dave Asprey is an entrepreneur, professional biohacker, and the man behind all things Bulletproof, the coffee, the collagen bars, the podcasts, the books, and his latest book entitled Fast This Way is another must read. Dave is a provocative, sometimes controversial, but always entertaining, and without a doubt, one of the leading futurists in our world of well-being. It's an honor to have him back here today. Dave, welcome. Congrats on another incredible new book, Fastest Way, which everyone has to pick up. Lots of great nuggets again. Always learning from you, and that's great. Great to have you back. Good to see you. Jason, I wish I was there in person with you, uh, but we couldn't pull it off, so we're doing our best with staying at home no matter what. We couldn't pull it off, but you know, you've always been a futurist and you've always had great audio. In, in... <laughs> so you are a pleasure to do a remote podcast with. You have phenomenal audio. Thank you. Usually people compliment my hair, but I'll take the audio. Thanks. <laughs> great, <buddy. laughs> great audio, which our listeners are appreciating right now. So. I'm going to start with a big question, which you've been, I think, honest about in a good way on on your social media channels. And the big question is around censorship right now with regards to the stuff we talk about, wellness, if you will, practices that are a little bit more holistic, a little bit more nuanced, practices that don't necessarily can be found on WebMD or CDC, or I don't even know what the CDC does anymore, but, and, and there's, there seems to be censorship and you've talked about this. So I'll start with the, that big question. How, how do you feel about what's going on with regards to social media and censorship? I really love it uh, knowing that there's thousands of untrained people uh, censoring everything we say according to a set of rules that aren't public. It makes me feel safe uh, and it makes me sleep better at night. I'm so great. I don't know anyone who knows about this could be happy. Let's I mean, tell them. It just doesn't make sense. And what, what I really think here is that, look, I am the first guy to sell anything over the internet. The first ever e-commerce was out of my dorm room in college when I weighed 300 pounds. I was selling t-shirts that said caffeine, my drug of choice. So I've, I was on the internet when you could actually know the whole internet, all of the World Wide web was like a hundred websites and you could kind of know. And I've watched the legal evolution of this. The reason that internet service providers and social media companies don't get sued for what people say on them is that they are not allowed to be involved in content. And the legal perspective is if you are going to take responsibility for content via censorship or anything else, you must take legal responsibility for all of your content. That's the deal they have in place. And the second a social media company says that they have the right to turn off your content and not someone else's, they open themselves up to lawsuits for all of their content. So I am extremely excited for all of the attorneys who don't have anything to do suing big tobacco or asbestos or food companies for having a half a gram more or less protein per bar than is on the label, which by the way is a natural thing. So you guys go to town on the social media guys. They just completely left their fly open legally by trying to censor stuff. Now they're responsible. So let's take them down, right? Let's take all the money from those lawsuits and let's put it into our schools. Like let's put it into feeding our country right. Uh, but bottom line, you go to the world's most popular search engine 
two years ago, and you could search for something like intermittent fasting, and you would see the websites that most people were seeing. Now you go, and there is not useful information about health anymore. I have switched my browsing uh, or my searching to a company called DuckDuckGo because it's a search engine that shows the same thing to everyone based on popularity and keywords instead of based on advertising and censorship. And it has completely enabled me to write fast this way. I could not complete my research for the book using the search engine that I've relied on since it was two guys and a server and I was working with them. So just understand that. Now, Wikipedia, don't donate money to Wikipedia right now. Wikipedia has a huge bias against natural alternative and functional medicine they have for years and there's no way to fix it because it's controlled by about 100 angry, mostly white dudes sitting in rooms just relentlessly editing things to edit their reflection of reality that is not like a real encyclopedia. So we live in this world, and the fact that if you say something that has, oh, I did this on social, I quoted a WHO, (laughs) like a member of the WHO in a public speech, and said, look, here's a quote. And the quote said, we don't advocate lockdowns as a primary means of control seem like a good thing because lockdowns don't seem like they work and the cost of those in human lives and suffering is large, right? And they just haven't worked in the US. I think we can be pretty sure of that. So, oh, and he also said that they tend to disproportionately affect poor people, which was also a problem. I didn't think that I was doing anything wrong by quoting a WHO official. I got flagged on social media. So I live in constant concern. Hey, at what point will my page get deleted with 350,000 followers and, and all of that? I have no idea. And that's why I went back to something that a lot of people are doing. And I tell people, go to daveasprey.com slash uncensored, and you can sign up for my email list where I send out stuff I'm afraid to post on social media. It wasn't like this a year ago, and it shouldn't be like that, and it's not sustainable that way. And right now, you'll get that email unless you use one of the most common web-based email platforms whose name starts with a G. (laughs) And magically, if you are signed up to receive emails that you want – that talk about health and wellness, they will end up in your spam filter. I don't know why. It must be an algorithm. So there's nastiness afoot. I'm not going to say I know why or who. Maybe there's a dark Sith Lord manipulating everything and a cabal of bad people wearing triangle hats. I have no idea. All I can tell you is that the search results don't work anymore. And many of my friends have had 90% drops in their very valuable cutting edge stuff because it doesn't agree with stuff that is on the official list. And this is stuff that doesn't work. Yeah. Look, this is a subject uh, you know we're passionate about. I think we could talk about for hours and it's, and it's a really big issue right now. And I think I'll use a real world example to paint the picture for people listening who may not be as familiar. So, so vitamin D, for example, vitamin D and COVID, this was something that there was some really great science and research that happened earlier on in COVID six or seven months ago, huge amounts. And a lot of people in our community were sharing like, Hey, vitamin D levels, low vitamin D COVID, not good. Get your vitamin D up. Let's talk about this. People were getting censored. Sure enough, here we are finally, I think it was a month or two ago, Fauci comes out and says, yeah, there's truth. I take vitamin D, I take vitamin C. And the CDC and WH, no one was there on this. And then you have a lot of people in our space who shared a lot of great content, a lot of great science saying, hey, everyone, this is something we should look at. And that was censored. And and who knows what's going on, but it's dangerous. And I think we're all here to help people and give people alternatives. It's it's silly and 
the bottom line is we're all allowed to be wrong. And the government isn't allowed to censor you, but private companies are. It's just that the private companies are legally liable for all of their content if they censor any content. So uh, that they haven't figured that out. And one of the political figures, by the way, I'm not going to name names. I am not in favor of any politician. Dude, if, if you want to become a politician, I'm sorry, shame on you. <laughs> so the, the way it's supposed to work is the way African tribes do it, that anyone who wants to be the leader of the tribe is not qualified. And then they take someone who doesn't want to do it and they make him do it. <laughs> that, that's how to do this. Uh, because if you are grasping for power and you think better than others uh, what to do and you're going to be in a position to enforce it, I, I don't know, like maybe someone was mean to you when you were a child. So oh, a power figure is actually working really hard to put liability back on the social media companies. Because bottom line is, if someone is clearly breaking the law, like things like abuse of children and animals and things like that, it needs to be flagged, it needs to be shut down, and it needs to be uh, put to the attention of legal authorities so we can stop it. Everything else, I'm sorry, telling people that walking through doors backwards stops COVID, well, I think that's kind of dumb. However, there are people who wear masks who say this is how to stop your glasses from fogging up. So they're walking through doors backwards right now. And that's legal. <laughs> it just seems stupid. But stupidity is legal. And I would like to encourage people to realize that others are allowed to be wrong and others are also allowed to be right before we have a clinical study. There's seven kinds of evidence. And clinical double-blind clinical trials are only one of them. The most important evidence that you'll ever come across if you are sick and working to get well is called clinical evidence. And this is what doctors do when they see patients every day for 30 years. They figure stuff out and they say, you know what? I noticed that all of my patients who do this get better. So I like to have my patients do this. And they go, but what evidence do you have? The evidence is my patients get better. And that is called pioneering. And then over the course of the next two decades, academics will come in and they will research and they'll figure it out. And case in point, when I launched Bulletproof, I could tell you, because you could feel a difference, that the MCT oil, there's four kinds of MCT oil, they're different chemicals. One of the four was overwhelmingly better at turning my brain on. And I tested it on a bunch of friends. We're like, yeah, that's the one. And we launched that one. And five years after we did that, a study comes out of UC San Diego saying, oh, that's funny. The one type that Dave picked, the study didn't say that, but they studied that kind versus the others. They said, that one raises ketones four times more than the most common MCT oil. I'm like, I couldn't have told you the science because we didn't know it, right? And I can also tell you blending Bulletproof coffee, it makes it work better, and I didn't know why. And I wrote a $50,000 check to the University of Washington basically saying, I want to support basic water chemistry. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, a study comes out. It hasn't even been public, uh, publicized yet, but I'm allowed to talk about it. Like, oh, that's funny. MCT oil and butter, when you have tiny droplets of this in water, it changes the structure of the water and you can see it in a microscope. So this isn't like fairy water. This is real changes chemically that makes it easier for the body to use. I didn't know that's why I was blending it, but I knew that if I blended it, it worked better. And it's okay to know that something works and not have a clue as to why. And we have lost this in our national and global dialogue about health. Right? You're not going to know why a new thing works. That's why it's new. And it's okay for new things to work. And a case in point, fasting. I, I've been doing this for 10 years. I recommended it in my first big book, Intermittent Fasting. 
and I fasted in a cave for four days to write a book. We have a bunch of science about fasting and a bunch of things that we think we know and a bunch of anecdotal observations that are worth our attention. And it ought to be legal and it ought to be possible to talk about potential benefits of fasting. And we've got to get our ability to do that back. So switch away from the main search engine that is an advertising engine now. Go to DuckDuckGo and subscribe to email newsletters because email doesn't get censored very often. And if you do that, suddenly it's like, oh, I can learn again. I love that. And I'm going to ask you about fasting, but I just want to close the loop on this conversation. And, and you have this great this great post on Instagram where you, you talk about wearing a mask and, and you say, okay, you're going to wear a mask, but let's not forget about your inner mask. And you got to read the post, but essentially you're referencing our immune system and going back to some of frustration a lot of people in our community had when COVID, you know, first came out, we talked about a mask, social distancing, hand, sanit hand sanitizer. Okay, get it, got it, guys. But like, hey, let's talk about where's the conversation about strengthening the immune system, whether it's metabolic health, metabolic syndrome, supplementation. There, there are lots we, we could have done, we still can do. So I love this concept of the inner mask. I, we talked about this before the show. You need to get your hashtag. You need to get you need to get some some apparel on that, Dave. But talk about the inner mask and what that means means to you. Here's a little story that illustrates it well. At the very beginning of the pandemic, before they you know, shut all the small businesses down and people were still traveling and no one was using masks, I cleared my throat at an airport because I was by a common coffee place and they opened their their. Uh, toaster and like this cloud of like burned bread hits me. I'm like, <clears throat> and a lady 10 feet away, an obese lady, by the way, I was 300 pounds. I was obese. So this is not about being obese, but an obese lady holding a big frappuccino with all kinds of sugary globules on top of it. And a big muffin is like, you, you cleared your throat. Ah, and, and like, just lose it. And I go, Oh, don't worry. It was just gluten. <laughs> and and, and she looks at me and then yells at me some more. And I just looked at her and I said, ma'am, I said, I am really concerned that you are eating what you're eating right now and it's increasing my risk of the virus because you're making yourself sick. And then she didn't like me after that, but she didn't like me before, so it was okay. But that's an illustration of the inner mask. Look, an outer mask is questionably effective because people who wear masks do get sick. We actually have shown that. And I'm not saying that they don't reduce your risk. They do in some studies, they don't in other studies. I'm not an expert on masks, right? So what I will tell you is that I'm not gonna rely on a mask to keep me well. What I am gonna rely on is my inner mask, and that is my immune system. And I'm really like thinking about this because I spent 15 years of my life taking antibiotics every month for chronic sinus infections and chronic strep throat. So I became aware of respiratory issues and feeling them coming on. I am to the point now, I'm in my mid to late 40s. I travel, which I did before all of this stuff. I traveled 150 days of the year. I, I was CEO of a large company. I'm CEO of several other companies. I have a big podcast, I write books. I have wife and kids. I don't have time to get sick and I don't get sick. And how do you do that? You strengthen your metabolic function and you strengthen your immune function and you do it with what you eat. You do it with what you don't eat. You do it with when you eat and when you don't eat. You do it with how you sleep. You do it with how you shower of all things. And you don't have to be perfect on the other stuff. You just tilt the odds in your favor so that if you do get any illness, whatever it is, you have enough biological reserves, enough resilience that you are very likely 
to be someone who says, I've got enough to handle this. And if you're already so metabolically unfit and so weak and so worn down, whether it's by emotional stress caused by the media, by a bad diet, by lack of sleep caused by the media <laughs> or whatever else, then you're more likely to get sick because you're already depleted. So what if we talked about that? There is a great study that says 80% of people end up in the hospital from the virus are deficient in vitamin D. So is it a good idea to take one of the cheapest supplements you can take on a regular basis? Is it a good idea to spend 50 bucks on a vitamin D test instead of another coronavirus test? I think it is because I want to make sure my levels are there. By the way, my last test, my levels were at 87. I think 70 to 90 is good. Mission accomplished. By the way, I had to take three times more vitamin D than average because of my genetics. And so that's why tests are important. So we can do all kinds of stuff like that. And I just, I, I want us to all realize through, throughout your entire life, you wear an inner mask. You're born and it's not very well configured. It is configured in some part by your mom's bacteria, both inside the placenta and in the vaginal canal. And your body is constantly being exposed when you're young to different things. And you don't get that sick when young. And your immune system learns over time. I would not want to be a young child right now who's, you know, these you know, four-year-olds having to wear masks because their immune systems aren't getting programmed. We are building permanently weak inner masks in these kids. It's not okay. So your exposure to bacteria and viruses regularly makes you stronger. It's weightlifting for your immune system. I'm not saying we should all go without masks. That's not what I'm saying. And so don't misunderstand what don't I'm worry, saying. Don't worry. You're not going to see that headline from us, Dave. Uh, good. <laughs> but what I am saying is that if you are never exposed to other people, you will become like the tribes that the tribe that no one's ever seen on an island. And then the first person walks in there and then they all get sick and fall over. It's the same thing. The beginning of school, everyone gets sick because you're exposed to some new stuff. But you know who doesn't get sick? Emergency room doctors. The, my wife, by the way, is an emergency room doctor. Or she was. She's not practicing now. But what happens, you first get that job, you go in and you're just sick all the time for six months. And your immune system's like, oh, I got this. I, I have to be stronger. And it becomes stronger. And then you don't get sick when you're exposed. And the evidence we have, even for coronavirus, is so amazing because you take populations where they eat like crap because they can't afford or they're not allowed to eat better. I'm talking prisons and meatpacking companies where people are packed together. Two studies came out that I wrote about on my Instagram page. And it was simply that 98% of these people have antibodies to coronavirus, but almost none of them got sick. How could that be? It's because they live in an environment steeped in viruses and bacteria. They're constantly exposed, and most of them are exposed to other things that were similar enough that their immune systems could handle it. And yes, some people got sick, but way less than we're supposed to. So what's going on here is very complex. It's system-wide, and the idea that we're all going to hide from something that is endemic means always present. Fauci himself has said, even with a vaccine, this virus will be endemic. My, I mean, I'm, I may not be an original thinker or something, but my thought there is, hmm, if we're going to have to live with this forever, hiding for a while probably isn't a good strategy. And most importantly, making myself, making my family, making my community and making everyone who will listen stronger from an immune system and a metabolism perspective so that we can actually have a healthy functioning society, even if this stuff is floating around. That's the only long-term solution, and we have to do it, even if someone tries to censor it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And look, I think it's been frustrating for many of us. And with crisis, there comes opportunity. And the way I'm trying to think about this is, 
You know, some would have argued pre-COVID wellness, it's for wealthy people, it's this like nebulous catch-all term, it's fluffy, it's soft, it's the spa, it's... But now it's serious business. And there's an opportunity to empower people to strengthen their immune system. Because I think one thing we've learned is I'm not, the government isn't necessarily, I'm not an anti-government, I believe in government, but like they don't necessarily have our back here. And people, you mentioned this earlier, have been lower middle class, have been disproportionately affected. We go back to like metabolic health, access to food, knowledge, information, a lot of this there's a big opportunity to get everyone healthier here because whether there's a vaccine coming, one, it could work or it could not work, or there's going to be COVID-20 or COVID-21. And again, you got to take care of the inner mask and we need to empower people. And there's just a big opportunity here. And we can't just talk about all the things we can do to avoid getting the thing, but we should talk about strengthening ourselves so we can withstand the thing. You still don't want to get it. <laughs> no, hundred percent. But you can't. You can only control what you can control, right? To some yeah. degree. And many people that I know, if they have a choice between their kids being able to access other children, develop social skills, and learn in school, and being able to make their rent, they're willing to take the risk. And they're going to wash their hands. They're going to wear a mask or whatever else. But they're willing to take the risk. And we all want reasonable precautions. We would also like ones that are actually functional. And we would like ones that allow us to continue doing the things that create human happiness and that make a society function. And no one signed up for a lockdown until there's a vaccine. We signed up for a two to four week lockdown so we wouldn't overwhelm our hospitals. And I'm very happy to say mission accomplished on that one. It's been eight months. So it's time to get people back to work in a safe and measured way. And it's very much time to protect our elders uh, because it's important. Part of protecting my 99-year-old grandmother is giving her a hug. Yeah, it's, uh, we had Martin Kaldorf on the podcast, who's one of the, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. And he went in pretty extensive detail around what we can do to protect people in nursing homes and the elderly. and. Yeah, look, we could go on about this. We're going to segue to fasting. <laughs> Let's talk about, I mean, so, so the, I'm, I'm happy you talked about this because it, it's so important. And fasting is a major part of metabolic health. And I wrote Fast This Way before, before the pandemic happened, but I finished writing it in the first half of it. And there was already a chapter on fasting and immunity. And it turns out we know a lot about when you should fast and when you should eat. So we know what fasting does to make you more resilient, to make it so you're less likely to catch something or less likely to get really sick if you do it. We also know what kind of infections you should fast for and what kind of infections you should eat for. There's actual science about this. And like, this ought to be part of what we do. So if someone says, oh, I got a positive test, which has a 50% chance of being true or false, depending on what kind of test you use, but I got a positive test. What am I going to do right now? And what should I be doing right now in case I ever do get one? That's what we've got to focus on. And fasting is a part of that. The good news is most people, I'm going to have to say this, we don't really want to spend a lot of time on exercise. <laughs> right? Like, you know, you might be most people, look, I do my yoga class. You like your yoga class probably because it's relaxing and you're breathing differently and you're stretching and it feels good. 
right? But in terms of like, do you really want to go out for a run? If you really have to go for a run every day, you're addicted to opiates and the the endorphins you get from running. <laughs> and you might even be overtraining. Certainly when I weighed 300 pounds, I resolved nothing will stop me. 18 months of working out, an hour and a half a day, six days a week, no matter what. I didn't care if I was sick. I didn't care if I didn't sleep. I didn't care if it was finals. I did it. It was my most important priority. Went on a low-fat, low-calorie diet. And I still had a 46-inch waist, and I still weighed 300 pounds 18 months later. And I told myself, I'm at Carl's Jr., and I'm watching my friends who are all thin eating double Western bacon cheeseburgers with fries, and I'm eating the chicken salad with no chicken and no dressing. And the obvious conclusion is, well, I must eat too much lettuce. It's not an eating disorder. This is doing what you're supposed to do. Cut calories and work out more, and you'll lose weight. It actually doesn't work for a lot of people, especially for women. And if it does, it's fleeting weight loss and it goes off and it comes back on. No one said, hey, here's when you should eat. Here's what you should eat to not be hungry. And what I learned after working with many thousands of people over the past 10 years in the Bulletproof community, I mean, people lost a million pounds on the Bulletproof diet. It's that there are downsides to fasting and there are so many upsides but the number one way to make it through a fast is don't be hungry during the fast. <laughs> That's largely set by what did you eat before you started fasting? And if you get that right and you do some of the hacks that are possible to do during a fast, the pain, the struggle, and the willpower of intermittent fasting, it stops. And I, I remember back when I was very heavy I was growing my career in my mid-20s. I'm so excited. I'm at this company. We had Google's first servers back when they still believed in don't be evil. And, you know, we, we were... <laughs> sorry, Larry. Uh, we were... It, it was just an exciting time. And I still feel this youthful excitement. But I remember a meeting where I would say, guys, we're going to have to end the meeting now. It's 11.45. And I know we're going to go till noon, but I'm so hungry I can't pay attention. And I probably have to kill one of you and eat you if we keep going. So we got to go. And I'd go down to the cafeteria and I was like, I will die if I don't eat. Now, it felt that way, but it wasn't real. But I was absolutely 100% hypoglybitchy, right? Like, I just, I didn't have what it took metabolically to even go that long. Because I'd been told, like most people listening, if you don't eat six meals a day, you'll go into starvation mode. Now, this is core to understanding fasting. There's plenty of books about here's the metabolic benefits of fasting and plenty of books like here's how to fast. And I'll summarize those books for you in like one sentence. Don't eat sometimes for a while because it's good for you. There, I wrote a new book on fasting, right? except most people won't do it. That, that's what inspired me to tell the story, the mental and, and the, even the biological stuff that happened when I fasted in a cave for four days so that we can go from... I'm going to fast today, it's going to be a chore, to I'm going to fast today and it's going to save me time and it won't cost me any willpower. And that idea, I, I used to do this a lot when I was trying to lose weight before I figured it all out. I was in you know, corporate America and at, after lunch round two, they put a plate of cookies in the meeting room. So you have to go in there for the meeting right there on the table in front of these cookies. And I'm like, I'm not going to eat the cookie. And then the cookie's like, Dave, eat me. And I'm like, no. And it says, eat me. No. And pretty soon it, it's shouting it at me and I'm shouting back at it in my head. Meanwhile, trying to pay attention to somebody talking with a PowerPoint. And now that I have kids, 11 and 13, when your two-year-old pesters you enough, you're very likely to give them half the cookie too. 
and they have the power to pester you until you run out of willpower. Your mitochondria, the power plants in your cells that are sensing your energy, if they think they need it, they're going to pester you just like a two-year-old and you're going to give in. And maybe you'll, that day you'll win and you'll say, today I didn't do it. I use an extreme act of willpower, but you burned a bunch of willpower that you should have had in place. So after you commute home, if you still had a commute and after a long day at work with stresses and planning and all that stuff, you go home and your spouse and your kids are there. And are you going to be nice to them? Or are you going to be like, I just need some wine. Oh my God, I, I just can't handle this. If you burned all your willpower saying no to the cookie, you have less to be nice to your family. And this is a real thing. And it is not some like hug for hugs for everyone kind of thing. It's biological. It's mitochondrial. It's electrons flowing in your body. And I, I lived it so heavily. So what you can do is just understand that when you give into the cookie, it's actually not you doing it. Would it, you want me to walk through kind of the psychology of it? Yeah, yeah. And then I, walk through the psychology. I love that in the book. And what I also love too, and I think it's so important to note, is the differences between men and women when it comes to fasting. Okay. I think mean, those are two really critical principles which you outline in the book. In fact, let me talk about one of the studies in the chapter. There's a chapter on fasting for women, and then I'll go into the kind of the story about why your body does that to you and what you can do about it. So I have noticed... I was a raw vegan for quite a while and I made myself sick that way. Like many other people going vegan, you do it for the right reasons. Unfortunately, the story that it's good for you is wrong. And the story that it's good for uh, the environment, unfortunately, is also wrong. <laughs> I, I run a small farm. <laughs> you have to have animals pooping so that you have good soil because where the animals poop, you have lots of vegetables and where they don't poop, you have a few vegetables. So it's a life cycle thing. But it's not okay to torture animals and eat industrial meat either. So just to be really clear on that. So when I was a, a raw vegan, I said, oh, I feel really good on this. I'll keep doing it no matter what, right? And we tend to do that with a keto diet too. People say, oh, I'm keto. I'll do it forever, right? Or fasting really works. I'll do intermittent fasting every day for the rest of my life. And all three of these have something in common and it's called the fasting trap. But it affects women in all three of those diets before it affects men. And what the trap is that if something feels good to you for more than four or six weeks, you have accepted it as a fact and that it works. And then what happens is it stops working and you know that it already works. So it must be something else. So you're like, oh, I'm going to double down. I just need to work out more and I'll feel better. I just need to fast more and I'll feel better. I need to eat less carbs. I, I was at 50 carbs a day. I'll go down to 40 carbs a day. And maybe then I'll finally lose the other 50 pounds. By the way, I did that when I was using keto to try to lose 100 pounds. What you end up with is a belief that something works, therefore more is better. And what the reality is that Goldilocks was right. It needs to be just right. And for women on any of those three paths, fasting, veganism, or keto, what tends to happen before it happens to men is number one, disruption in sleep. And if you monitor your sleep, I use an aura ring. I was CTO of one of the first, there you go, one of the first companies to get heart rate from the wrist. So I, I know a lot about biomonitoring. And what's going on there is you're like, oh, wow, I was sleeping really well at first. And then I actually needed less sleep than normal, which was strange, but I woke up feeling really good. But then after that six week period for women, it's usually four to six weeks. It's like, wow. My ring shows I wake up during the night, even if I don't remember it, like I'm not sleeping as well as I did. And I wake up feeling a little bit hungover. I'm, I'm not as energized. So and maybe I'm not dreaming as much. And then 
wow, my cycle isn't working the way it used to. It's a little bit less regular. And oh, my hair's getting thin. What's going on? There is a study, and by the way, there are a few studies of fasting in women, and there's lots of studies in mice and lots of studies in young, white, healthy dudes. And the reason for this is that there's two forms of life that have very little value to university researchers, and one of them is college freshmen and the other one is mice. <laughs> so if throughout history, most of the people in college until very recently, it was young, white men. And what we're seeing now in universities, this is actually more women than men enrolled in universities. So 10 years from now, there'll be a lot more studies on young women. And because our, we have a lot more diversity now, it'll be more representative of all humans instead of just some. But when you look at 30 years of fasting data, a lot of it is male. But one of the studies found that restricting calories the way you do if you're fasting too much in women specifically is it attenuated their stress response to other stressors. In other words, if you're doing the vegan thing too much, you're doing the keto thing too much, or if you're doing fasting, even just skipping breakfast too much, your kids yelling at you is going to cause more stress than it did before. Your stress resilience goes down in studies, which is really interesting. So what we're trying to do is build ourselves as being highly resilient beings, which means not overdoing it. And if the first thing that goes is sleep, the second thing is hormones, the third one is hair. The reason for this is your body as a woman knows that if there's actually not enough calories in the environment, it is a life-threatening situation. And it's life-threatening because if you were to get pregnant, even if you have no intention to, this isn't you thinking, this is an automated system very deep in your cells. It knows if you were to get pregnant in an environment with no calories, two things are likely to happen. One, you're unlikely to have a healthy pregnancy. And two, you might die. No one wants to die. But this is a built-in thing. So it's like, hey, stress, the stress levels go up. But when you first start fasting and you're overdoing it, your stress levels go up, but it feels good because adrenaline feels good until you run out. And then when you have elevated cortisol for longer periods of time, you see it in thinning hair and, and hair shedding. You also find your thyroid turns itself up. And when your thyroid turns itself up, you feel really good, except that then after about that six-week period, it starts to decline because it can't turn up the thermostat anymore. It's all, all the way up, but it's not making heat anymore. And then you get the energy declines. And it's amazing how veganism, unending keto, and fasting all have this pattern in common. And it hits women first because that stress response is coming because a woman's biology knows that getting pregnant during a famine is the worst thing you could possibly do. And it'll try and stop you from doing that, right? And if only our mitochondria, these ancient bacteria that run a lot of our biology, if only they knew, <laughs> oh, look, there is food here. Oh, look, it's not a famine. It's not a threat. They're listening to signals that you send them from your environment. So what you want to do as a woman is use fasting as a tool to tell your body, hey, there'll be brief periods where you better be strong enough to feel good and skip breakfast or maybe to go 24 whole hours without food. But the rest of the time, there's so much nutrients, there's plenty of good fat, you're in a safe place of abundance. And then the body's like, okay, I got you. I'm gonna take the weak cells that can't go 24 hours and I'm gonna get rid of them and I'm gonna replace them with newer, younger cells. But if they never get the signal that says that's necessary, they'll just allow the weak cells to sit there and do stuff. 
And when you have weak mitochondria, there's another name for that. It's called diabetes. It's called inability to regulate your blood sugar. It's called aging. And it's pretty incredible what happens. You know, wait a minute. You mean if I'm a woman, maybe intermittent fasting, in other words, skipping breakfast, having a late lunch, doing that just three times a week, maybe it's all I need. Maybe I just do it Monday through Friday. And on weekends, I actually have the gluten-free waffles with my kids at brunch and we celebrate and it's totally good. And maybe I don't have to be keto and kale all the time. And maybe at night I'll have some carbs. Maybe that trick that's in fast this way that says, even if I'm fasting, a teaspoon or two of raw honey before bed can make me sleep all night long and it reduces my stress and it's okay. So there's a self-kindness message that's in here that's not present in a book about the biology of fasting. I love it. So I, I love that. And I love this idea of overdoing it because I think so many of us have that tendency and you talk about orthorexia and just, and look, I get it. People, so many people in our world, something's wrong. They feel terrible. Western medicine ignores them. They read a book like you, they go to a functional medicine doctor or they or like, like Hyman or Lippmann or so, or they read a book, they change their life. Boom. They went, they go from feeling crappy and like they're crazy and ignore to, I feel great. And then that becomes religion and then you're hitting all this then it's like whoa wait this doesn't work i I, now it's not working i must do more and i I get it's a slippery slope and i think finding that balance is really tough and it is a process and what i've learned personally is what's worked for me as i've aged i'm 46 now like my body changes things change and what works for me today like works today but in a year or two from now like it's going to change again it's very hard to have that self-awareness in the journey to be open to, hey, maybe what I'm doing, which worked for me, and I swear by, isn't really working for me today. It's a little easier for you and me. Uh, I'm 48. (laughs) So it's easier because we're men, but we've passed 40. And the changes that happen to you uh, over the 40 to 50, if you're not managing them, are not very pleasant. And we become aware (laughs) of our bodies. Like, oh, you mean I woke up without a kickstand this morning? That's not good, right? Uh, not that you know what I'm talking about, but you've heard this from other people, right? <laughs> so it's a little bit different for women, though. And you know, my wife is a medical doctor, and we've talked about this a lot. Uh, I actually write about some of her stories in the book around perimenopause and fasting and how to think about that. And it's interesting. We don't we don't notice it as guys because our stress resilience in terms of, of what we can take when we're 25 years old is pretty much consistent throughout the month. Now, women are much better biohackers than men on average. And it's because, hey, my body is usually not in a steady state. It keeps changing. <laughs> like I know that on day 22, I might feel different, right? And of course, it's inconvenient from all the women I've talked to, but it also provides wisdom and awareness of what's going on in the body. I, until I was 30 and really did my personal development work and got really sick with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue and prediabetes and high risk of stroke and heart attack and cognitive dysfunction and stuff, I I was in a a trough I had to climb out of. But until I got there, I'm like anything from the neck down that isn't bleeding or really hurting is just not worth paying attention to. And it's a very common male perspective. And I'm seeing encouraging changes in the younger generation where we're like, okay, yeah, maybe you should pay attention to what's going on below the neck. Hey, that whole heart-centered thing is important and feeling in your gut. But this is, it's new and it's less intuitive for men from what I've seen from talking with so many women about it 
uh, and so many men. So yeah, I don't want to put people in buckets and stereotype, but I think most women hearing that would agree. Like they're probably better at knowing what their body's doing than a guy is. And that's awesome because it means you'll know when your fast is breaking or when your other diet isn't working. Look at that. Sleep quality first. Second, look at what's going on with your your cycle and look at what's going on with your hair. And just those three things, like that's the degradation pathway that most women experience if they're overdoing anything, including fasting. And if you're underdoing fasting, you'll probably notice because you have to wear Spanx all the time. <laughs> so on the theme of overdoing, I think we've just had this wrong. We as a society exercise and this idea, you hit on it earlier, that more is better. Everything I'm reading and seeing, you, you touch on this in the book, is just we just completely had it wrong, that, that less is more. High-intensity interval training, hot-cold therapy, this idea of shocking your system. So let, let's, can you talk about that for, for a moment? Sure. I introduced a new idea in, in Fast This Way, and it's something that after you know, 20 years and in, in, you know, creating the biohacking field, I think I finally have this picture down. And it's that the body doesn't adapt very well to steady states, but it responds very well to the slope of the curve. And what that means is that an abrupt change in your environment creates really powerful change in the body. And this is why if you were to say sit in a sauna and then get in an ice bath, that abrupt cold makes the body go, oh my God, I have to be able to make heat really fast. Therefore, I need strong mitochondria. If I don't have them, I'll make them. But if instead you're like, oh, I got mildly warm for a while, then I went outside and it was cooler. The body's like, eh, I don't really need to do it. And the same thing goes too. There's research I've talked about on, on my podcast where if you were to do two intense 20 second intervals over seven minutes, this is cardio, and walk as slow as you can between them, you get more cardiovascular benefit than 45 minutes of spinning. So two 20 second, two 20 second intervals. So we're talking 40 seconds, 40 seconds. Yeah. And, and, but this is university of Colorado real research. I interviewed the physiologist who did it. He wasn't paid by anyone to do this research. He's like, this surprised me. It wasn't what I expected, but what's happening there is you're basically like, I'm plotting, plotting tiger, ah, plotting, plotting. Okay. Two of those tells the body, be ready for a tiger. And if it says, oh, I couldn't turn on full speed running, I guess I'm in an environment where occasionally there's a tiger, I'll die if I don't make stronger mitochondria, therefore I'll do it. And the side effect of stronger mitochondria is your brain works better, your hormones work better, you're thinner, you metabolize your food better, and you live longer. And so I'm like, I want my 45 minutes back. I'll take that. And I didn't have to get in yoga pants. So on, the, that <laughs> on that 20 seconds, I'm curious, what, what does that look like for people? Is that a all out sprint? Is that burpees, jumping jacks? What's uh, what does that look like? The research was done on a on an AI driven exercise bike called the Carol, but you can replicate it at home. So what you do is you walk slower than you want to walk, like really just like, oh, look at that. Look, there's a leaf. Uh, and then you literally sprint like your life depends on it. You are sprinting for your life for 20 seconds. You could do it on, a, on an exercise bike, but it comes down to crank it up and stand on those pedals with every fiber of your being. And then the trick is really slow afterwards, right? So heart rate up, 
heart rate back down as fast as you can. And two of those teaches the body more. And it's the same thing with food, with fasting. Hey, I didn't have breakfast. I didn't have lunch. And the body's like, oh my God. And then I had a normal, healthy meal with plenty of nutrients in it. And if you break your fast with a kale salad, Kale itself is inflammatory. I know. <laughs> you're, famous, you. you're, you're famous for hitting on kale. We'll let that go for today. <laughs> There's like thallium and oxalic acid and all this stuff. I will tell you, if you eat kale before a fast, the fast will be harder. And you can anyone listening can test this. Just try it. And what, what's going on there is you're going to you're going to just send a signal to the body that says you better be able to do this. But if instead you were to say, I'm just going to eat a few less calories today, the body's like, I'll tell you what to do. In fact, this is one of the most powerful weight loss things for men and women ever known. And this explains why I didn't really lose 100 pounds. I lost probably closer to 200 pounds. Because over the course of my life, you lose 25, you gain 35. You lose 35, you gain 45. You lose 45, you gain 55. And I just got used to having my fat pants in the closet, right? Because you just never know and, and you feel helpless. I don't have fat pants anymore. I just threw them away because they don't do anything for me. I'm a 33 inch waist, not a 46 inch waist. And it, I've been that way for a long time now. And it is liberating. Uh, unless I do a lot of squats. <laughs> then I might need one inch bigger, but I'm okay with that too. So what's going on with that? After you lose that weight and you gain it back, you lose it, gain it back, and you have your fat pants. And, and it's just, it, it's so demoralizing. And I, I just remember like, but I just lost all this weight and it just came back. What did I do? Why am I so weak? What's happening is there's a hunger set point in the body that's set by a hormone called ghrelin. And studies now show that you will have the hunger of a 300-pound person if you cut calories and exercise to lose weight. And you'll never win. Over the course of a year, <laughs> that hunger will eventually chip away at you and you will eat stuff until you gain the weight back. But there is a hack for that. Studies have shown that getting your ketone levels up, which does happen through probably a 24-hour fast, or if you use one of the fasting hacks I talk about, MCT oil, or if you uh, do a longer fast where your body goes into ketosis, a brief period of ketosis will reset your hunger hormone ghrelin levels to your current body weight. And that is liberating. That says that even if you did that thing that's so hard to do, where I'm just going to eat nothing and exercise all the time, and I got to the weight I wanted, for God's sake, go into ketosis a little while, so at least you'll be as hungry as your current body weight instead of being as hungry as you were when you were heavy. So fasting can do that for you too. And man, if someone had told me that, I wouldn't have lost 35 and gained 45. I would have just gone into ketosis for a brief period at, when I lost the 35 pounds, and then I would have been hungry, like a 270-pounder instead of a 300-pounder. And why we don't teach us, I don't know. But what we also know is that you can hack your fast. And I, I think this is so important for women because we still know that women do more domestic housework than men. And there are plenty of studies showing this. And men do more than they did historically, but it isn't exactly fair. And most families are dual income at this point. So I'm just going to say the odds are high that if you're a woman, that you have more total work in a day than the average man. I'm not going to say that's uh, unfair because it kind of goes without saying it's not fair, but it is what it is. So you probably don't want to go on a fast and skip breakfast if it's going to make you hangry in the middle of the morning. 
when right now you probably have family around, whether it's your parents, whether it's your spouse, whether it's kids, and they're there and you've like, I have a role as a caregiver and I just, I also have my job and I'm trying to balance all this and you're telling me to skip breakfast and all I want to do is eat and what the heck, you can fix that too. There's a satiety hormone, the hormone of fullness and it's called CCK and a very low level of ketones, 0.5 on a blood stick if people are doing ketone monitoring is enough to turn on the fullness hormone and it's enough to turn off ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So what I would propose is what people have had very great success doing is that there's three fasting hacks that you can do that turn off hunger during a fast. The first fasting hack that's in the book is just black coffee. And we recently discovered at the University of California at San Diego, the amount of caffeine in two small cups of coffee will double ketone production just by itself. So you already fasted after dinner, let's say you had an early dinner, which is a good idea. So you got three or four hours before bed. You got, okay, that's say four hours, eight hours of sleep. That's 12 hours. You have some coffee, which doubles your ketone production. You only have to go four more hours and you're like, oh, wait a minute. I just did a 16 hour fast, right? It, it's pretty manageable. And if you were to say, go another couple hours, you've done an 18 hour fast, which is what most people are targeting for a daily intermittent fast, or at least an every other day intermittent fast. And that black coffee can be a lifesaver because it turns off hunger a little bit. But if you're saying, all right, I still want a little bit more energy. I just don't want to be distracted by any kind of hunger. Then Bulletproof coffee, there's a couple hundred million cups of it have been served, and I, I'm very confident when I say this, it turns off hunger. I'm also very confident, and I put the evidence in the book, you're still getting almost all of the benefits of a full fast if you put a little bit of MCT oil and a little bit of grass-fed butter in your coffee. You don't have to put masses of it in there. You can if you want to, but even a very small amount of butter changes the structure of the water in the coffee. And this is, again, research published at the University of Washington that shows that is true so that your body really can use the water more efficiently to make energy. And the MCT oil raises ketones directly. So when you do that, all of a sudden, like, oh, the ketones went up, the hunger hormone went down, the satiety hormone went up, I don't care about food. And now when there's a muffin in front of you at 10 a.m. when you normally would eat it, instead of having the inner dialogue that maybe you'll win, you just don't ever hear the muffin say, eat me, because you don't want the muffin because you're actually not hungry because you controlled your hormones. That is an epic fast. No willpower required, right? That's what I want people to understand. And the final fasting hack that's really important is prebiotic fiber. And you can put this in coffee, you can put it in tea, you can put it in water. It has very little flavor. And when you do this, it doesn't raise your insulin levels at all. It doesn't turn on protein digestion, you're still getting the benefits of fasting, except if you're fasting to try and heal your gut and to try and turn off bacterial activity. What prebiotics do is they feed good bacteria in your gut. So if you do this during a fast, it is shown in multiple studies to turn off hunger. So someone has like, I have the worst cravings. I have to eat candy all morning. I just can't do this. Try the Bulletproof coffee, put a scoop of prebiotic fiber in there and you have that at breakfast. And you're like, you know what? I'm free of my cravings this morning. I was focused. I felt good. Uh, I got everything done. And then I chose to have lunch. But when it was time for lunch, you didn't have to have lunch. You're like, you know what? It's lunchtime. I guess I should eat. It's a very different feeling from that I'm going to die if I don't eat. And everyone can fast under those conditions. 
And it turns out that it reduces that whole body stress that women are more likely to get than men because you have energy even though you didn't have any sugar or any protein. And that's a major shift in our, in our fasting paradigm. So personally, again, I, I know I, I, I'm a 46-year-old man, but what, what I, I do the black coffee. I, I love fasting. I fast pretty much every day. And I'll do anywhere between like 15 and 20, depending on how I feel. I always do the black coffee. Sometimes I'll do uh, ghee or grass-fed butter. Sometimes I'll do mm -hmm. MCT oil solo. Sometimes I'll do the ghee or the butter with the oil. Like I'll, I'll always mix it up. And I think it goes it's great back. to mix it up. Yeah, you have to because again, it's like the, what works today may not work tomorrow, and it's important for people to know that and embrace that. And so I'm going to switch gears though. But we're going to stay on hacking. You, you had this. I'd be remiss not to ask you because you had this great episode on your podcast about hacking hair loss. And look, people are stressed, and with stress can cause hair loss. And but you talk about hacking hair loss. So can you expand on without people should listen to the episode, but like give, give you got to give sure. us something on hacking hair loss. It's fascinating. Okay, I'm going to give you the short version, the full version, bullet, just Google bulletproof radio where I said it use.go. Come uh, on, Dave, you uh, got to get in the new protocol uh, here. <laughs> yeah. Use.go or a search engine that works. Search for bulletproof radio hair, and you'll probably find the episode. So <clears throat> my wife has tripled the amount of hair she has at the end of perimenopause. Her hair got thin and it was really a problem to the point that at her last, her last time at the hairdresser, her hairdresser was like, can we just cut off the old hair? Cause it's so thin and it, it doesn't look normal because you have like this full head of hair. And then the bottom three inches is like a third as much hair. And it has been a shocking change. And there's a few things you want to do for this. One of these is you got to control your stress levels because cortisol makes you have thin hair. And one way to do this is adaptogenic herbs in the morning. And if you do this, they control your ability to turn on stress and then turn it off when you're done. You might want to do one of the other types of fasting that's in the book, which is called a news fast or a social media fast. You don't have to watch the, la the latest breaking news. There's really not that much going on. <laughs> so not on a second by second basis. So kind of chill out a little bit, but the herbs can help. Then get your thyroid levels tested. You need to have enough thyroid. And if you've been dieting, fasting, and especially if you've been vegan or plant-based, you really want to get your thyroid levels tested. And then you probably want to supplement something called biotin and you want to take relatively large doses of that, like eight milligrams, uh, sometimes even more. And then there are other things uh, you can do as well. You've got to get an advanced hormone panel and see if your progesterone to estrogen ratio is off. When you wake up in the morning, you likely want to take a pinch of Himalayan sea salt and put it in water and drink it. And the reason for that is a hormone called aldosterone. It's one of your stress hormones that in the morning, you have to have more blood pressure so you don't pass out when you get out of bed. Having a little bit of salt in the morning lowers stress all day long. You actually feel better all day from that. It's pretty easy to do. And the final thing that made a big difference uh, for Lana is something that's near and dear to my heart. You can use red light therapy on your hair. And one of my companies called True Light makes light therapy devices. And there are other devices out there that, that are like caps you can wear. So she did all of these things at the same time and just had a huge sprouting. I truly think that the light therapy was a major part of it. In my case, I'm feeling pretty good about my hair right now. It was getting a little thin. I was getting a bigger forehead than I liked. And all the guys in my family have been bald pretty much by the time they were 30 on both sides. So I had bad genes. I was holding the line until 48. 
So as part of my episode, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to see the top hair guy um, that I can find in the U.S. Uh, his name's Alan down in Florida. And so he went in, and in addition to teaching me the stuff about hair, he also said, why don't we just move 10,000 follicles from the sides to the front? So they used to just cut out like a piece of sod. They don't do that now. It's one follicle at a time. It's like, they can plant it. It's, it's a miracle of science. They have a robot that does it. So you sit there for a couple of days, and now I have more hair on my forehead than I did before. But more importantly, the rest of my hair is like way thicker and healthier than it was because I started controlling those variables. And I, I think for women, especially dealing with that thinning of hair, start with the adaptogenic herbs, but get your thyroid tests. It's going to be amazing, and you got to eat enough protein. Collagen protein is a good idea for your hair. So you mentioned adaptogens. I'm curious which one specifically, rhodiola, ashwagandha, what are there specific ones? Rhodiola, ashwagandha, and ginseng are the three big ones. And the role of adaptogens, they were invented for use in war to allow soldiers to immediately run into battle and then calm down afterwards. So it's just to make it so that when you get stressed, you do it quickly, and when you get de-stressed, you do it quickly. So that would be good because otherwise we're stressed all the time and any kind of mindfulness meditation practice, but it's cortisol and thyroid and a lack of biotin and a lack of collagen that all conspire, uh, especially for women, to cause that thin hair. And if you fast every morning, you might have thinner hair. And when you break your fast, if you don't put a lot of good quality protein in there, you might have thinner hair. It's important that when you do eat after fast, like, hey, buddy, we live in a world of abundance with all the healthy fats, the kind of fats that you're made of. You're going to have some grass-fed butter in there. It's going to be creamy and delicious and good. You're going to have some protein, including some grass-fed red meat some of the time. You're going to have some collagen protein, which has almost no flavor. You can hide it in anything. And you, when you do that, you're like, oh, hair's growing. That's amazing. So in closing, I could talk to you for hours, but I know we can't do that today. In closing... You're always on the bleeding edge, the cutting edge of, of what's next. And I'm curious, what are you concerned about? And also, what, what excites you right now? What I'm concerned about is something that I, I, I feel I have some responsibility for. When the Bulletproof Diet first came out, I, I wrote about it in 2010 and 2011. And there was a little bump in Google Trends on keto. And it, it feels like the world has become much more aware of keto. The problem is that they didn't stick with the cyclical part of it and they didn't stick with the when you break your ketosis or when you're in ketosis, you have to eat the right fats and the right proteins. So I'm really concerned that we've kind of gone off the deep end on keto where we have a lot of people who are breaking their health because they're doing keto for too long and they're doing it with cheap foods that don't work. And I feel like fasting is kind of on the same path where and until we understand the Goldilocks zone, especially for women, that you've got to understand the psychology of fasting so it isn't about suffering. And you've got to understand the biology of fasting, which says just because it's good to do it sometimes doesn't mean it's good to do it all the time. Because I see it have negative effects on women first, but I see it have extremely positive effects on women who do it sometimes but not all the time. So I really want to bring that message forward. And that's one of the reasons for the first time, and there's something that I'm very excited about, I've kind of had the habit of spending thousands of hours writing a book and organizing thoughts and just putting everything I think is the most value in the book. And then you kind of put it out there and hope people read it. And what I'm doing this time is I'm saying, look, get a copy of the book, send your receipt to me on fastthisway.com 
and then I will teach you for two weeks. We'll go through all the different types of fasting and we'll do a, a spiritual fast, which is when you're gonna actually feel the feelings go through the thoughts, the things I went through in the cave, but I'm actually gonna be teaching because I was a teacher for five years at the University of California. I love teaching and I realized I was writing the textbook, but I wasn't teaching the class and I'm doing it for free when people just do the honor to me of pre-ordering the book. Fastthisway.com is where you can get the info on pre-ordering and also on how to have me teach you with live Q and A's and the whole thing. I, I just want to share this stuff because it's changed my life. I, I want no one to ever weigh 300 pounds and be as tired as I was. Amen. Fast This Way, surely another bestseller. Dave, always a pleasure to have you and thanks for all the good work you're doing. Oh, thanks, Jason. Likewise, uh, keep on sharing the good stuff that works and people will keep coming to you. I appreciate your work in the world a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you.